man, why didn't we have him reading earlier? He didn't get the hard words, but still, I thought that was a really good job. Thank you, uh, Harlan. That was great. Um, so our children, stay put. No children's church. We're going to give the Strombergs another break. Um, so let me open us in prayer, and then we'll turn to the word of the Lord. Lord, as uh, we celebrate this new year, um, different cultures at different times have celebrated New Year's at different places in the calendar, but this is when we do it. And Lord, as we approach this new year, we, uh, we look forward with anticipation to see what you're going to do. And uh, Lord, we're, we're counting on your movement, on your work, on uh, you furthering your kingdom in this world. And so be with us as we enter this new year. Father, I want to pray especially for uh, Dan Stromberg and his family, and especially his sister Ruth, as she has got multiple things wrong with her right now. So many illnesses, and her body is having to fight all of these different things all at the same time, including COVID and sepsis and all these other things. Father, if this is her time, if, if it's time for her to uh, be absent from the body but present with the Lord, Lord, we ask that you would take her um, before her suffering is too much, that uh, she would go peacefully and quietly into her rest with you. And Lord, if not, then would you give her body the strength to fight these illnesses and the doctor's wisdom on how to treat them. And so Lord, have mercy on her and her family and give them uh, wisdom and care. But Lord, through all of this, we pray that you would show yourself to be faithful and kind and good in the midst of all the struggles. Have mercy, Lord, we pray. And Father, to that end, I want to thank you for a second week of getting to have Bob Kempel back with us. We've been praying, Lord, for his return, that you would strengthen him, that you would give him the ability to come and be with us and worship with us again. Thank you for answering our prayer. Thank you for restoring our brother to us. And Lord, we pray for Bob in a similar vein. Would you continue to strengthen him and help his body fight off all the things that he's been wrestling with? And Lord, thank you for um, the new valve in his heart, and may that begin to strengthen and, and restore his strength to him. And I just thank you that we get to enjoy him. Uh, bless him, we pray. And Lord, as we turn now to your word, we want to hear from you. And so Holy Spirit, um, don't let my words be my words, but help them to be an explanation of what you've told us here. Help us to see and to understand what it is that you have for us this morning in your word. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Happy New Year. The tradition is that we make New Year's resolutions, right? Everybody make a New Year's resolution? Um, everybody gets quiet at that point, <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Uh, I did some looking at uh, numerous different sources, and the, the numbers are pretty similar. 38% of U.S. adults make New Year's resolutions every year, 38%. 59% of young adults, that's uh, 18 to 34, make New Year's resolutions, so that tends to skew younger. I think us older folks have done it enough to go, it's ain't working, <laughs> so we get a little more skeptical. But we do that, um, and the kinds of uh, New Year's resolutions that we make are, are pretty similar. 48% want to exercise more. Uh, they want to be more healthy, eat better, uh, um, something like that. It's all, it tends to be uh, health-related things. The top three were health-related things. Um, and then uh, how do we do? We make these resolutions. How do we pull it off? 36% uh, of us make it past the first month. 23% quit in the first week. Now, if you go to a gym, you know this, right? Because like January, you're not going to get anywhere near a machine and then February, it's vacant because everybody makes these big resolutions. The really troubling part is only 9% of us successfully keep our resolutions to the end of the year. 
Um, what a bummer. Let me, let me give you some good news in the midst of this. These were all physical, natural things, right? My health, my relationships, that kind of stuff. We can make New Year's resolutions, just resolutions in general, of a spiritual nature, and we have something that the physical world doesn't have to help us meet those resolutions. We have a promise that will help us reach our, our resolution goals. And what we're going to see this morning is, as we look at this story um, of the ark, finish this ark story, uh, we're going to see the, the aids that the Lord will give us to help us accomplish our spiritual resolutions, um, these, these right and good ones. Now, it's been five weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel. Uh, it's been a little bit. And I need to recap really quick. So 1 Samuel is about the establishment of the kingdom. It is the, ultimately it's the story of David's ascension to the throne. But it is the kingdom arrives in Israel. Where we're at in that story is kind of the leftovers from the book of Judges. The book of Judges, I take it as a prelude to 1 Samuel because it's talking about the judges, and as we draw towards the last few chapters of the book, what we hear over and over again is there was no king in Israel, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so by the time we get to the end of Judges, we should be disgusted. They are behaving horribly, and what we should be doing is crying out, we need a king in Israel, because everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So when we get to 1 Samuel, we're moving into the answer to that. Now, we're not there yet. We don't have a king yet. We don't have the right king yet, but we're, we're heading in that direction. So we're in this, this phase where we're still doing what's right in our own eyes, but we're heading in a good direction. And so the story starts with um, the birth of Samuel. Uh, it's a miraculous birth. His, his mother couldn't have a baby, and she comes to the Lord, and the Lord grants her a child. And so Samuel is born, and it, it's a, a miraculous, a wonderful thing. She dedicates Samuel to the Lord, which means when he's weaned, when he's old enough, she takes him to the temple and drops him off. And he's going to work there. He's going to stay there. So he's working in the temple with Eli, the priest. And he's serving the Lord and, and, and just being this little boy. I mean, I can imagine this little kid running around in the temple helping. And, uh, and eventually the Lord calls him. He hears the Lord's voice at night. And when he recognizes what it is and he says, speak, Lord, for I'm listening. God gives him his first prophecy. So what Samuel is going to be is he's going to be this bridge between the judges and the king. He's going to be a prophet. Now, there were prophets before and there were prophets after, but Samuel is kind of the first court prophet, this prophet who has this more official role. And he's going to judge Israel, but then he's going to hand it over to Saul, um, who will eventually be the king. His first prophecy is horrible. He, he doesn't want to tell Eli what the prophecy is, because what the prophecy is, is Eli, on the same day, both of your sons who are priests, who are horrible priests, are both of them are going to die in the same day. And nobody from your house is going to be a priest except to lament the days when they could have been. And so that's his first prophecy. It's, it's, it's terrible, but Eli kind of takes it in stride. This is, you know, the Lord is good. Then all of a sudden, Samuel disappears. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's not there. He's not going to be mentioned again until the next week in chapter 7. We'll, we'll catch back up with Samuel. What we're in now is this kind of interruption in the story. And the story that we're dealing with now is the story of what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. So what happens is Israel, for some reason, we don't know why, decided to go have a fight with the Philistines. Uh, so they go down and they, they wage war with the Philistines and they lose. And they lose pretty bad. 
So their response is, well, we know what we'll do. We'll grab the Ark of the Covenant and we'll haul it down there and God will see and he'll be with us in this battle and then we'll win. And so they go down and they fight the Philistines and they lose even worse than they did the first time. The Philistines kill the priests who carry the Ark. They take the Ark and they haul it off. And so word comes back to Shiloh that this has happened and a, a loud wail goes up in the city. And Eli's, who's sitting by the road waiting to hear what's going on, a young man runs up to him and tells him, both of your sons have died. In the battle, they were both killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. And at that, Eli falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and he dies at an old age. It's tragic. But it gets worse, because one of his son's wives is having a baby. And she goes into labor, and the labor doesn't go well. And as she dies, she names the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Because she looked at the ark and said, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. And so that's a horrible situation that we're in. Then the camera focuses instead on where the, the ark wound up. And we go to Philistia, and we see what the Philistines did. They took the ark, and they hauled it into the temple of their god. And they set it up right next to their god, Dagon. They recognize Yahweh as a God to be respected, and so they put him in a place of honor next to Dagon. And when they come into the temple the next morning, Dagon's laying on his face. So they, I, I joked around, I said, you know, the priests were saying, oh, we need some help. Could we get some people in here to help set up Dagon, the all-powerful, the almighty, the, the great God? And they put him back up. And the next morning when they come in, Dagon's on his face again, but this time his head and his hands have broken off on the on the. Um, the threshold of the, the, the house. And so now they recognize this is not a God to be trifled with, this Yahweh. He, he's somebody to be dealt with. So they move the ark to another country or to another city and people break out in sickness and illness and they want to send it to a third one and they're like, hey, you ain't sending it here. It's got to go someplace else. And so there's, there's trouble. They recognize what's been going on. Then we took a break for Advent. Two-thirds of the way through the story, we stop. We got Acts 1 and 2. Now we're going to get Act chapter th or Act 3, Act chapter 3, Act 3 here. And this is where the story picks up. Uh, verse 1 says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So they've been dealing with this for a while. When they bring the ark into the temple, they see that God's hand is against their, their God. Their uh, Dagon suffers because of that. For seven months, the people are breaking out in illness. What we're going to see a little bit later on is also mice had come into their, into their uh, country and devoured their crops. And so now they've got this, this infestation of, of vermin as well as this physical sickness upon them. And they recognize this is the hand of the Lord. This is Yahweh doing this to us. And so we've got to do something. So they go, they, they call the priests and the diviners. So these are the religious leaders, the holy men. The diviners are their soothsayers, their, their psychic hotline, if you will. They call them and they say, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? We want it out of here. It needs to go home. And so they go to the holy people, the people who should know, and they ask them, what should we do? And their response is actually fairly wise. If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty. But by all means, return to him a guilt offering. Now, when it says don't send it away empty, it doesn't mean open it up and throw stuff on the inside. Because what did they do? They, they built a box, or a, uh, another translation for that is a bag. And they put these gold things in it and set it beside it. 
They were smart enough not to mess with this thing. It's, it's killing people. Let's not touch it. What they mean by send it away empty is don't send it back without some sort of an offering. Send it away with, with some sort of an offering. So they say, um, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand did not turn away from you. Well, you kind of know because you've captured his ark, this present, this symbol of his presence. Um, and, but they're, they're a little skeptical. They're, Actually, I, didn't, I don't think it's fair. Some of the commentaries were saying, like, these, um, these priests and diviners were too proud to say, well, Yahweh is doing this. And so they couch it as, well, maybe if, it could be. And I think the reality is that's what fake soothsayers do. It, it could be that this, you know, it could be that. Look at a, 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 don't look at it, but look at a horoscope. They're so vague and nebulous, and it might be this and it might be that. So I think this is just their normal way of talking because they don't know for sure. So they say, if, if you send it away, then you will be healed. And what guilt offering should we return to him? And they answer, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. You must make images of your tumors and images of mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Can you imagine what the tumors look like, gold tumors? I mean, it, it must have been some sort of welt or something that would be recognizable that they could fashion it, not just like a red splotch, but you know, like maybe raised welts or something. But I, all I can think of was when the Israel's, Israelites open the bag and they go, oh, look, mice in, in a glob. <laughs> Did they just spill some gold and throw it in there? Oh, but look, they all look the same. What the heck is this? Um, this is what gets returned to them. And so they say, this is the, the couching part, they say, perhaps he will lighten his hand off of you and your gods and your land. Now, the, oh, and the last part too, let me get this in there. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? That last phrase sounds almost like a throwaway, but actually it has a lot of weight here. They, they recall the Exodus. And if you remember early in this sermon series, early in this story, that's what the Philistines said was when the ark comes into the camp, they remember the Exodus and they remember that God defeated Pharaoh and they are terrified of him. But they said, we got to steal ourselves and, and, and man up here and let's, let's fight a good fight. The, the, uh, the Exodus comes back. And what's really interesting is it, it seems like the author is reminding us, taking us back to the Exodus, because he uses some of the same words that were used in the Exodus. Um, when he talks about the, the ark going out empty, don't let it go out. That, that go out phrase is the same thing that Moses went and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. It's the same word, to go out. He says, don't send it away empty. That's a similar phrase to what God said, when you depart from, Israel, or from Egypt, you're not going to go away empty. You're going to take the spoils of the nations. So they returned to their land. They left Egypt with a bunch of stuff. People were throwing stuff at them. Just leave. Here, take some clothes, take some money, take some whatever. Get Just get out. It's a similar kind of situation. So, so what it looks like is our author is kind of painting this picture of another exodus. Um, but this one's different because it's not God taking Israel out of Egypt. It's God taking the ark out of Philistia. The common denominator there is God. God's doing this. This is God's work. And so that's, that's where we need to keep our focus is this is on God's work. So how do they determine to return the ark? They say, prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which has never come a yoke 
and yoke the cows to the ark and take their calves away from them and send them home. What they're doing here is they're, they're proposing a test that goes beyond nature. It's unnatural. If you took two cows, like you don't yoke milk cows. Milk cows have a specific job, have babies and give milk. You don't yoke them. But if you're going to yoke a beast to a cart, you have to train them to it. They need to learn to, to pull in together and to not fight each other and what this thing is behind them and it's going to be okay. So that's the first thing is these cows have never been yoked. They don't know how to do this. And then the second thing is even more extravagant. It's even more wild. They have just given birth. They have babies. Their udders are gorged. They need to have the babies nurse or they're in deep pain. And they say, okay, now take the babies and send the calves back home. So now you've got these two cows yoked to this, this cart. Their calves are back home. If you let them go, what do you expect to happen? First of all, chaos. They're going to be bucking and fighting. They're going to be pulling them against each other. And second of all, if they get their act together, they're heading home. They want their babies. So they say, okay, take this, set it up like this, put the ark on the cart and the box or the bag or whatever that thing is. It's, this is the only time the word appears in the Bible, so we don't know what it was. And set that on there and then watch. See what happens. If this is a natural occurrence, it's going to be chaos. If this is something else, these things are going to head straight to home, straight to Israel. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as they let the, ca the cows go, they go in a straight beeline. They don't turn to the left or the right. They head straight to uh, Beth Shemesh, to this Israelite city. And, and they walk right on the path the whole way home. And it says they were lowing. They were mooing. Uh, why were they mooing? I don't know. What was that all about? I don't know. You know, this is one of those little details that makes it feel very real. Because the mooing doesn't add anything to the story, does it? <laughs> it's as if somebody was like, yeah, they took off and they were mooing. They, we, we were standing there. We watched them walk in and they were, they were mooing as they came in. I've never seen anything like it. It, it. it adds an air of authenticity. And so that's what happens is, is the lords of the Philistines follow this cart as it heads straight down the road and right into Beth Shemesh. And so the Lord's watch, and then they turn around and they come home. And so now the Philistines are free of the, the Ark of the Covenant. Yay, it's gone. So hopefully the, the, the plague will end, the mice will depart, and all of this. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is kind of an exodus, right? This is, this is kind of a repeat of the exodus. Well, the exodus was God judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but most importantly, he was judging their gods. He was bringing judgment on their gods. And so this is what's happening here. The judgment is on the lords of the Philistines because everybody's complaining to them. You've got to do something about this. It's on the people. The people are suffering with these boils and these lesions and these tumors and whatever they were. And it's also a judgment on their gods because Dagon was a god of the crops. And so when these mice come in and start destroying everything, that's a judgment on Dagon. Not only did he have his head and hands broken off, but now his power has been shattered because these rodents showed up. So now God is, his, the ark is gone, so maybe God will leave us alone. The, the Philistines learned their lesson. So what happens when we get to Israel? It's better, right? Everything's great. This is going to go wonderful. The ark is back where it's supposed to be. Sort of. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. Just miraculous. It's, it's like a self-driving Tesla. You know, you, you can tell your Tesla, 
come to me and it'll pull out of the parking space and drive up to you and stop right in front of you. Except these are cows, which are dumber than a Tesla. <laughs> so they pull up to the right spot and they stop right at this giant rock, this large rock in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And so what happens is, is they act appropriately. The Levites, not just anybody, but the Levites took down the ark and the box that was beside it with the golden figures and they set it on the great stone and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day. They killed the cows, they broke up the cart, they burned offerings to the Lord. They had the Levites handle the, the, the ark. They didn't do it themselves. It was wonderful. This is, it, it's so good. It's so good that the, the ark is back. Sort of. It doesn't quite go as expected. So we get a, a quick report. These are the golden tumors um, that the Philistines have returned as an offering. Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the golden mice, apparently they exceeded what the, the priests and the diviners said. The golden mice, according to the number of the cities and the unwalled villages. So there must have been a lot more mice in there, I guess. Um, that's nice. It's not like a magic number. Five was the only thing they could do, but I just thought that was kind of interesting. So they set up the the um, the ark on that, and that the, our author says, hey, that rock is still in that field, and it's a witness to this to today. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, out of nowhere, verse 19 says, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people a great blow. This is the one technical part of this verse that we need, or this section we need to deal with. Because if you're looking at a, a New American Standard or King James or some other ones, it says 50,070. And most of the other modern translations just say 70. All of the ancient, all of the most ancient uh, Hebrew manuscripts we have says 50,070 men were struck down. There's a problem with that. First of all, um, Beth Shemesh was a small farming community. There probably weren't 50,000 people living there, let alone 50,000 men, let alone 50,070. So the thought is the 50,000 wound up as a scribal error inserted into the text, that it wasn't 50,000, but it was 70. The other problem is the, the grammar there, it's not 50,000 and 70, it's 50,070, and that's not how Hebrew uses, word, uses numbers. So the thought is that that was a, a scribal insertion. That's why almost all the modern translations just say 70, is it seems like a better number. Even um, the, the Septuagint, the Greek version from between um, the, the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New, and um, Josephus, who was a first century writer, all reported as 70. So that's one technical thing. The other technical thing is, why did they die? Now, what our text says is, because they looked on the ark. They, they, uh, he struck 70 men and, um, they, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, were they supposed to approach, approach the ark like this and not see it? I, I don't think so. That was not a problem. It came you know, publicly on a cart. Um, the, the preposition there can be translated looked at or upon or looked in. And I think that's what it, I think a better explanation here is, is they looked in the, the box. They looked in the, the ark. The men of, uh, of Beth Shemesh decided to get a little bit too friendly with it. So look upon could have that same kind of connotation. They, they saw it as common, as, as everyday, as normal. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint says here that they didn't rejoice at the ark. 
And I think all of those fit together if they had an attitude of, well, this is an interesting thing. Let's take a peek. Um, I can remember in 1976, I was young. I'm just going to leave it at that. 1976, we celebrated the bicentennial of the United States. And one of the things they did was they had a train go around the United States called the Freedom Train. And in the Freedom Train, they had the, the Constitution. They put it in there and they hauled it around the country so people could come and look at it. It's not by any stretch a sacred object. It is an important one. It is a very fascinating thing. It's part of our history, but we all wanted to go see it. So we would go wherever the, the freedom train came so we could go see it. I went into downtown Detroit so we could see the, the, the uh, Constitution. It was a matter of national pride. It's part of our national heritage. But we weren't going to worship it. It wasn't a document from God. We weren't going to you know, bow down. It never went into a temple anywhere. The Ark of the Covenant, though, comes into uh, Beth Shemesh, and people treated it like it was the Constitution on the freedom train. Here is a, a symbol of our national pride. Here is something that we should be proud of. Let's take a peek inside. You know what's in there? The Ten Commandments. Wouldn't that be great to see? Look in there. They treated it with respect, with awe, but not with religious reverence. Now think about what did the Philistines do with that ark when they took it? Did they, they took it to the house of Dagon. Did they put it into the loot storage room, the treasury of the temple? No, they brought it right into the holy place and set up right next to their God. Even though they weren't going to worship Yahweh, they treated it with respect and awe. The men of Beth Shemesh thought, oh, let's see what's inside there. I want to, I want to take a peek at the, um, the Ten Commandments, see what that looks like. They, they treated it as a national treasure, as a, <laughs> get that, that's a movie reference, never mind. They treated it as a national emblem, as, as a source of national pride. This is who we are. This is us. And, and they could be much more familiar with it than they should have been. And so God killed 70 of them. He struck them down. And so their response, after they, after they get hit, then their response, they kind of wake up and they say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? In other words, we blew it. We can't stand before him, and he can't stay here. This, this ark, the he could be translated it, as in the ark. The ark needs to leave again. So the, Philistine, the contrast here, I think the author is painting this really strong contrast. The Philistines, these dirty pagans, treat the ark with more respect than the Israelites do. And both of them have the same response. It can't stay here. And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it to you. You guys come and take it. And fortunately, this time it works. The men took the Ark and they brought it and they, they established Eleazar to have charge of the Ark and to kind of be a priest for it. So we don't know if Eleazar was a Levite or a priest. Probably was uh, um, because they put him in charge and they were careful enough to have the Levites come down and take care of it. And so what we find out in the next verse is it's going to sit there for 20 years. So here's a question. That's, that's a very cool, I think it's a really cool story. I think it's really interesting. How does it connect with us? What do we do with it as New Covenant believers? How, how, what are we supposed to take from this story? And I think there's a lesson to be learned here. We can, uh, we can as New Covenant believers, think, well, we don't have to worry about that. We have Jesus, and we're cool, and, and it's all all right. Um, we get a pass. We, we can take things a little more lightly, and we get a pass. It's kind of like... Um, 
middle of November, the uh, police chief of Tampa, Mary O'Connor, and her husband uh, were driving on a public road in a golf cart. And a police officer pulled him over. And what Mary O'Connor did was flashed her badge, said, hey, I'm the police chief of Tampa. Quote, I'm hoping you'll let us go tonight. She assumed that her privilege would get her out of this, and it did. And the part that blows my mind, the part that <laughs> she is so stupid, when she first got pulled over, she asked the police officer, is your body camera on? And he said, it is. And she did this anyway. I kind of feel like that, that could be our attitude is we know God's watching. We know he's aware of this and we can get a little flippant with the things that he's given us and think, well, we'll just get a pass. We're with Jesus. You know, I, I got my, my salvation badge. I'm cool. There's a lesson to be learned for us in this. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, I find it interesting. It never came back from the exile. It disappeared. God was extremely particular about it here. He was killing people. And, and infecting people and, and sending plagues because the ark wasn't handled right. But it wasn't to be eternal. It wasn't always there. And so when, when they came back from the exile, we don't ever hear of the ark again. And he seems to be okay with that. That, that seems to be okay. But we in the new covenant have been given things. We have been given these tokens, these, these expressions, these ways that God is with us. And the warning here to us is, Let's not be flippant with them. Let's not take them as the badge of honor or, you know, the ceremonial thing, but recognize this is a holy God and who can stand before him. And so I just want to go through a handful of things that, that I thought of that God has given us and we can treat poorly. The first and the greatest, the most important one is we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the old covenant, the spirit would come upon certain people at certain times in certain ways. A priest might have the Holy Spirit. A judge would have the Holy Spirit come upon him. Uh, a prophet would have the Holy Spirit come and speak through him. A king might have the Holy Spirit. We'll learn that with Saul. He might not. But it wasn't common amongst all the people. Within the new covenant, the covenant that we're in now, God has sent his Holy Spirit to seal each and every one of us. If you're in the covenant, you have the Spirit. So we have this tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit. He's been given to us. And we can, if we're not careful, Treat the Holy Spirit in a similar kind of respectful, you know, that's it's, it's great, but not in a reverent way. And so, for example, Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It is possible to be sealed for the day of redemption and grieve the Holy Spirit. Make him regret dealing with you. Make him sad to have to deal with you. Have him be angry about dealing with you. It is possible to do that. What we can do is we can take the gift of the Holy Spirit as a granted. Of course he's there. He's there for, you know, for whatever. Instead of saying, what a tremendous thing. God has sealed all of us with this tremendous gift. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19 says, don't, don't quench the Spirit. The Spirit can be working in us and we can resist and, and fight against him. And so that's, that's one of the biggest things is we can... Take that gift of the Holy Spirit as, as lightly as they took the Ark of the Covenant. This representation of God's promise to them, they can treat it as nothing special, as, you know, that's a nice artifact. Rather than quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit, though, we could, as it says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
God has given us his spirit. He's written his law in his heart. He's inclined us towards obedience. And yet we still have the flesh that's not redeemed. And so we have this wrestling match to go through. And so what he's calling us to do is pay attention to this great gift he's given you and respect it and follow it and go with it. Go with what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's one of the greatest gifts of the new covenant is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. One of the other great things is that he's given us each other. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it was much more communal. The king could be good or the king could be bad. And the people would suffer whether they were godly people or not. It was dealt with as a much more communal thing. Within the New Covenant, God deals with us much more individually, personally, one-on-one. I could go off the rails. I could start teaching blatant heresy, and you would not suffer. I would. You would be called to hold me to account because God's going to deal with us individually because each one of us is given the Holy Spirit. But he didn't save us into individual clumps. He didn't save us into individuality. He saved us into his church, his called out ones, his gathering, his people. And so he's given to us each other. And so this is a tremendous blessing that we can have for each other. And yet we can abuse each other. We can neglect each other. We can take advantage of each other. So we get warnings throughout the New Testament about how to deal with each other. Galatians 5 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, take care of yourself. No, but through love, serve each other. Pay attention to, care for the other. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So there's the warning is don't take the precious gift of the other as something that is light and airy and and not that important. You should view the other Christian, the other person in your life as a treasure, as something to be honored and respected. Here is somebody for whom Christ died. Here is somebody who is sealed with the Holy Spirit and God has put them directly in your life. Don't open the lid and peek in. Don't treat it like it's something not, uh, not very special. There are just multiple other ones on and on that talk about how we should live together in in peace and harmony. One of the other ones that I thought of was from 1 Peter. We recently covered that. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Why? Because they are heirs with you in the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So look to your spouse. Look to that other as somebody who is that important to you, somebody who's been given to you as a gift. The next one is the scriptures, the Bible. Now, there's not a whole bunch of uh, commandments in the Bible that say, thou shalt read your Bible every day. We just don't get those. But Timothy, or Paul does warn Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And what we get is this, in the New Testament, what we get is not so much a command, you should know the scriptures and you should read the Bible every day, as we get the example of it. These people just knew the scriptures. Watch Paul as he preaches through the book of Acts. He would step up and just know these verses. And some of them would be out of of nowhere. Like how many people know Joel well enough to quote it like uh, Peter did? They just demonstrate, the New Testament just demonstrates over and over again how important the scriptures are in our lives. So don't neglect the scriptures. Here's your New Year's resolution. This is a spiritual resolution that you can make and you have the Holy Spirit and you have each other, and you have the scriptures to do. Read the Bible this year. You can do it. In one year, you can read the entire Bible. 
takes about 10 minutes every morning or evening whenever you're going to do it. We've got reading plans we printed out. They're sitting on the table out there. You can download apps for your smartphone. You can get um, online versions. You can get Bibles that are printed to be read in a year. They're already divided up that way. But you have to plan to do it. You can't just kind of drift into it and go, well, I'll just read a couple of verses today and tomorrow. You have to read a set amount. So use something to help you do that. Don't neglect the scriptures. This is a tremendous gift. We don't have just the writings of Moses. We don't have just the Old Testament. We have the complete canon. Everything God has had to say in writing, he's given to us. Don't take that lightly. Make a New Year's resolution. This year I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And I gotta, I'm going to brag. I finished yesterday. I did it. Usually I'm about a month or two behind. I usually finish like in April or something like that. But this year, on the day, I finished reading the, new t the, uh, the, the rest of the Bible. You can do it. it. It's possible. And I did it when I wasn't a pastor and, and it was my job. I did it when I was working elsewhere. So make that commitment. This is a tremendous gift that God's given you. Don't treat this. You, do you remember? I, I don't, some of you folks are going to be too young to remember this. There used to be these big white Bibles that said Holy Bible on the top. They were about this big and about that thick. And there was a picture of the Anglo-Saxon Jesus on the front looking all um, holy and righteous on the front or maybe the praying hands. And you would see those in people's houses and I don't think they ever opened them. If you ever opened one, the pages would crackle because they'd never been opened before. Don't let your Bible turn into one of those. It should be worn because you're going through it all the time. Or if you got an app, you know, that works too. But you know what I mean. Don't let this be the Ark of the Covenant that you're going to peek into once in a while and think that that's cool. Don't neglect church. Now, I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here today. <laughs> I got to tell you, I expected, uh, Dan and I joke around, this is usually youth pastor preaching Sunday. Um, nobody's here. The pastor's on vacation, and so the youth pastor gets to preach. Um, and I came in, and I was like, look at all the cars here. I love this church. These folks are serious. So I'm preaching to the choir, but don't neglect church. Now, that's more than just the each other coming together. There's, there's a function that goes on here as we share gifts of the Holy Spirit with each other, as we work together, as we come together. So in Hebrews 10, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So don't neglect church. Um, I, sometimes I think we can think, well, you know, I can go if I'm free that day. <laughs> Plan to be free. Plan to make it to church. It's worth it. Here's one that I guarantee is going to step on a few toes, prayer. Prayer is a difficult one. Um, the great Puritan John Bunyan said, I am, I, I'm paraphrasing here, I struggle to go to prayer. And while I'm in prayer, I hate to stay there, but I need to. And so he struggled to remain in prayer. So prayer, I know, is one of the hard ones to do. Think about what prayer is. The omniscient, all-powerful, omnipresent, God of the universe, the creator, and sustainer, and everything of the universe wants to hear from you. He, he doesn't just ask, would you please come and pray to me? He, he commands you. When you pray, Jesus said. He didn't say if you pray. He said when you pray, pray like this. So prayer is one of the most important ones that we can do, and it's one of the hardest. Now, there are people, I am so glad there are people like this who just pray. They just do. You bump into them, and a prayer comes out of them. I love people like that. I wish I was more like that. 
I'm, I tend to struggle to pray. I, I have to remember to pray. I have to, have to write it down and have something in front of me to remind me to pray. But we have a tremendous promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not with doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for if he's a double-minded and unstable in his ways. He promises us that God will give us wisdom. Ask him. If you're having a hard time praying, prayer number one is, Lord, help me pray. That's, the first, that's how you start praying. So, so there's another option. And then the last one is, I want to use this as an introduction. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. After the sermon, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper. So let me use this as kind of the devotion leading us into the, the Lord's Supper. Communion. Communion is one of these great gifts that God has given us. So I have a great tuna casserole, and I'm sorry you're starving, but I'm busy eating. Or another person would say, I've got this great bottle of red wine, and I'm going to drink it all myself, and I'm sorry you don't have any. So that's what Paul is saying. This is communion is not to be something isolated. Now, we've stylized the meal. We brought it down to a simple elements, and we've turned it into a ritual, and it's okay. It still works. But the spirit has to be the right thing. Don't turn this into that Ark of the Covenant that you think is just a national token. This is something special. This is the Lord meeting with us. This is the Lord drawing us together, drawing us to each other, thinking of each other first, serving each other, and then eating together. It's, it's a wonderful meal. And so that's why I was really glad that um, Joel brought this up. Whoever eats the bread of the uh, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is what it means that some of you are weak and ill. Some of you have died. Have you ever thought about approaching the Lord's table in an unworthy manner and having your life threatened? That's a scary thing. We're dealing with something much bigger here. Now, what he says there is, he says, without discerning the body. And I've had arguments or online discussions with sacramentalists who say, see, without discerning the body, if you don't find this as the body of Christ, then you're reading it wrong. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Let's take a look at body in context. Without discerning the body means without paying attention to the rest of the church. Remember what he said? You come and you eat and you feast for yourself without thinking about other people. So without discerning the body means this is communion. This is us eating together. This is all of us joining together. This is a special, beautiful gift that the Lord has given us. We're going to do this until he returns as a reminder of his return. And that's why I think it's, I wanted to end on this one is I think it, it goes back to 1 Samuel 6. They looked in the Ark of the Covenant. They took it lightly. They treated it as a common thing. And God killed 70 of them. It's possible to take all of these wonderful gifts that God's given us, treat them lightly, come to them without discernment, without care, and God's going to kill us. Now, it's going to look different. I don't know how he's going to do it. It, it happens in different ways, but there's a, a legitimate live threat here. So what we want to take away from 1 Samuel 6 is, who can stand before this holy God? Who can stand before him? And instead of saying, we want him to come up and go away from us, 
Instead, what we've got is we look and go, Jesus Christ can stand before this holy God. Jesus Christ can stand before him on my behalf. He can stand before this holy God. He can take all of my screw-ups, all of my mess-ups, every single thing I've done wrong when I don't discern the body correctly, when I don't pray, when when I skip reading the Bible for a month. He can stand before the holy God because he doesn't do those things. There was no king in Israel, and so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There is a king in the church. Jesus Christ is our king, and he's faithful, and he will remain there forever. He's a high priest who's entered into the holy place. And so when we come to these things, we have this this New Year's resolution help. We have a high priest who stands in the way, who is there to lead us. We have been given the Holy Spirit, sealed in the Holy Spirit, and he's leading us and going us in the right direction. He's given us his word. We have the Bible to encourage and remind us and impress us. We have the Lord's Supper to feed our faith. And so we have a great conspiracy to meet our New Year's resolutions in the spiritual way, the spiritual resolutions. Now, good luck with the diet. Good luck with the gym. Um, good luck with uh, reading uh, 20 books this year, whatever your plan is. Those things. You know, may God bless you, and I hope you're successful, but know that when it comes to spiritual disciplines, spiritual activities, God has conspired to make it possible for you to succeed. So let's sing a song. I'm going to pray. We'll sing, and then we'll we'll come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we're, we're grateful that we are in the new covenant, a new and a better covenant, a covenant, covenant formed on better promises. A covenant sealed with a better seal than blood sprinkled on an altar. But instead, Jesus' blood sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. Lord, thank you for making our covenant conspire to conform us to the image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't um, resist him, but Lord, that we would follow where the Spirit's leading. And so, Lord, thank you for this reminder of. Um, of the the people in, in Beth Shemesh and how they needed to pay attention. The, these warnings, Lord, upon us, whom the end of the ages have come, they're there for our instruction. May we learn. And Lord, I pray that you would be with each and every one of us in this room this morning, in this new year. May we fulfill all our New Year's resolutions and the spiritual um, disciplines that you call us to. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.